Hi, welcome to my podcast, Articulate. My name is Divya Sharma. I have started this podcast to bring together students of art by talking to artists from all over the world, creating a community by talking with them about their backgrounds, their art practice, their inspirations and experiences. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Antonis Sideras. He is a performance and video artist based out of London. Hi, Antonis. How are you? Hi, Divya. I'm very good. And you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you uh, faring in the uh, in the lockdown? Are you keeping well? Yes, yes. Um, for me, I'm just very grateful to have a roof over my head and still have um, and still have a job. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you know, all the people I love are good so far. Touch wood, and I have you know, I still have food in my house. So I um. I, I feel very grounded and grateful by that. So That's amazing. That's inspiring. So um, you are, uh, tell me something about your job before you start about, you are a librarian. At I'm a library assistant. Library yes, assistant. At uh, Wimbledon College of Arts. Uh, so as a library assistant, how has your uh, role changed since uh, how it, before the lockdown? So we've gone to delivering our um, academic support services online. And what has happened was a lot of students are now, not a lot, sorry, the majority of students are now researching with online resources through our catalogue. So a lot of the time is spent helping them with questions about the catalogue and about how different the environment is, but we also do a lot of um, back-end tasks. So we do things uh, to do with social media and okay. getting resources to people. Um, and it's just about um, just trying to inspire them and show them that this should not be an end yeah. to the creative process. So it seems like it's busier than ever before in spite of working uh, from home. It fluctuates. There's times that it can be busy, but there's also times where it's not as busy and you have to be self-motivated to get through it because otherwise it can get tedious. And those endless Zoom calls. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so, Anthony, so why don't you let our listeners know, um, and me also, a little bit about um, yourself, I know you're from Cyprus, but uh, if you can let us know about a little bit about your um, personal background. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Antonis Duras. I am 27 years old and I was born in Limassol, Cyprus in 1992. I had a very nice upbringing by the sea. Wow. And I- that's something that I will always miss here in London. I, I'm the, the sea is just part of who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And I moved over to the UK about eight years ago in 2012. Mm-hmm. I studied illustration and visual communication at Westminster University. Oh, I see. And then I did a Master's in Fine Arts at Wimbledon College of Arts, which is, as you know, part of University of the Arts London. Yes. 
So uh, your uh, BA, was it a BA? It was fine arts was in illustration, you said. Yes. So illustration. And visual communication. And visual communication. Yes. So, um, so does that come under the purview of uh, fine art courses? It was an interesting mixture when I joined the course because obviously you have the traditional illustration and graphic design mm -hmm, yeah. part of it. But the area that I was more interested in was visual communication. Mm -hmm. And what happened was I was initially planning for, uh, I was I was applying for fine art courses. And when I, I was... Got, I got notified from Westminster that they didn't offer me a place for fine art, but they offered me a place in visual communication instead. And um, part of my three years in the course was figuring out what is a person like me doing in this course. And mm -hmm. it ended up being that I was exploring visual communication through performance. Wow. And I feel like... It, it's as if you have a field and then you're plowing through the field and preparing it, mm -hmm. you know, to grow um, fruit and veg on it. And I think my BA was very much um, me getting prepared and having all the skills to then become a fine, uh, to then study fine art, if you will. So I think, yeah, it was better, you were better off with this larger umbrella that you could do literally anything with your um, skills and what you wanted to become as an artist. So talking about your um, foray into performance art from your BA course, is that what you continue doing in your MA and is that what you do um, in your practice at the moment? I know I introduced you as a performance artist, but uh, if you can go into a bit more of uh, detail... Absolutely. So I, the way I describe myself is performance is the backbone of my practice and my work. Mm -hmm. And performance for me as a medium in my practice, it has a symbiotic relationship with other areas of art, such as video, such as writing and installation art. So for me, I occupy that realm where it's not performance in a vortex it's it's performance linked with installation with writing with video yeah um, so when i went into the mfa uh, at wimbledon the masters of fine arts yeah. i started exploring objects and then later on i started perform uh, i started performing a lot more for the camera mm -hmm. so i was looking at video performance as a medium itself mm -hmm. because very different. Staging a video performance is vastly different from staging a live performance. Yeah. And by the time I finished the course, I was very much on top of my work because I knew what my work was about. And also I discovered the little niche that I occupy mm. within the art world, which is a very tiny niche, you know, compared to how big the art world is. But... Mm. And, and my place is a bit more in the fringe, and I really enjoy that. So what did you mean by fringe when you said uh, that you occupy a fringe in the art world? So I don't look at myself as a mainstream artist. I don't look at myself as somebody who 
um, is established, even though I have done a lot of exhibitions, performances, I've shown my work in a lot of places, but I still don't feel like I'm somebody who will ever be picked up by the big galleries or the commercial galleries. Mm -hmm. And my work is a bit more DIY. It relies on collaboration with other creatives. And it's very much, I am the artist, the curator, the writer, the social media person, the, the technical team. So it's all about being resilient and also staging events and uh, not necessarily staging, but participating in events and exhibitions and performances that are more on the fringe side. So they're not necessarily as popular or trending, but they're still there. And I think they form a very solid part of the art culture in general. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I thought when you meant fringe, it was because of the, um, that the, the kind of theme that you um, occupy, that you want to um, use in your art rather than the actual genre itself. So uh, talking about uh, themes, uh, I know that you, um, uh, that you are a performance artist, but then is there a particular um, topic that you uh, are passionate about and that you want to um, bring forward with your art? Absolutely. Mm. Um, so tying off from the fringe, that was a very good remark uh, because also the theme of my work has to be, it's, it's got to do with marginalization to an extent. So the way I look at the area that I'm examining through my work I very much like to create characters and a lot of these characters, I create them using um, gestures, using movements, using costume and props and the characters are very much queer in nature. So I combine signifiers from, I, I call them cross-gender signifiers. Right. So when I create my characters and when I create bodies of work that form around them for me it's about how do all of these individual characters that stem from me how do they work together collectively in undermining the notion that topics such as gender or identity are fixed mm. so for me it's about the fluidity it's about the, the change, the evolution. It's about how I, I cannot tell you that I'm one person at all times. Mm -hmm. It blows. And leading on from that, my work particularly looks at queer identities, mm -hmm. sexualities, and it's also touching on themes of marginalization, also how, um, again, the queer community is part of the fringe, you know, we're not in the epicenter of um, contemporary life. Though we've come a lot closer to it, we're mm. still not 100% accepted, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, but for a lay person, although we know a lot more about um, gender fluidity and gender studies, 
but then there are slots that are uh, put for like when you talk about LGBTQ again it's definitely putting people into pigeonholes when you again um, lump them in a category which is part of LGBTQ so um, for somebody like me there is a lot of ambiguity and there's a lot of overlap between um, these terminologies so would you be able to kind of um, explain where you stand as far as um, these terminologies go yeah so person identifies gender queer mm-hmm. which is synonymous to non-binary or gender fluid so it's all about saying that me as a person I do not wish to be defined by the gender binary that I feel like my existence is a lot more than just boy or girl Mm. um so if you take the term lgbtq plus because there's a lot more into it I think it's lgbtq i a a and then it just (laughs) is it oh my goodness it is so that's why I, I frequently use the term queer community yeah because for me, it's easier. Um, so you have lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, um, intersex, asexual. Of course, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think I understand what you're saying, that there is this feeling of otherness. And there's this feel that we are the one category that gets the runt of the litter, that gets the people that elude um regular classification if there's such a word as regular because i don't think anything is regular or normal um but i think the nice part of grouping us together i believe it's it's a it's a quote that i read from a book from suzanne striker mm-hmm. who if i'm getting the names right i might be getting the names wrong so i'm very sorry about that But it's basically, it's this trans woman who is writing a book about trans lives. Mm. And what she's saying is, even though I understand that my experience as a trans woman might not be the same as everyone else in the queer community, we have all been oppressed. We have all felt the sting of being othered. So those shared experiences can help build a bridge and it can help bring us together and to an extent we should be having an understanding towards each other unfortunately it's not always the case Mm. there's a lot of tension within the lgbtq plus community between the within the lgbtq community is what you're saying Mm -hmm. right there is this um Unfortunately, a lot of people, when they think of LGBTQ+, they think of cis um, gay men wearing leather and harnesses. And the queer community is so much more than that. We're so much more wild and and diverse than that. So um, would you say that um, you... um still associate or agree with some of the ideologies of the um, gay pride and um, the pride 
uh, marches that happen every year, which has become so kind of mainstream already. Uh, would you think that they are uh, doing their bit for the um, for this for this community? It's interesting that you brought up pride because I have got very mixed emotions and I, I, I'm a bit conflicted by the whole idea of pride. I relatively recently watched the Marsha P. Johnson documentary on Netflix, which I would oh, really... Oh, it was amazing. I've seen it, yeah. It, yes, it was life-changing to me because I talked to you about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who are incredible selfless they were excuse me because they're no longer with us sadly they were incredible selfless people who had enough of the oppression that they lived under and they felt that they had nothing to lose and they had to take a stance mm. and watching this with my boyfriend i was actually in tears and i said to him I wonder if the queer community would do something like this today, as radical, as defiant as that. Because I, I don't know, maybe we've been conditioned, maybe we've been, you unfortunately see, see part of the issue within the queer community is also ageism. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of younger queer individuals who have fallen out of touch or maybe never got in touch with queer history. So... Right. They will shunt older people within the community away. And it's an issue because some of the older people that went, that survived the AIDS crises, yeah. they feel like we fought for your rights and you're literally putting us away. But excuse me, going back to pride. Mm. So pride has its roots in... Um, protest it was a protest it was a demonstration it was about asking people to look at the queer community and i feel like pride has become something completely different today i feel like for most of the people that look at it from the outside it's just a big party mm -hmm. and sadly for some of the people that take part in it it is a party and I actually created a body of work called Party with Question Mark for yeah. my show for the MFA Fine Art. Yeah. I basically created bunting using fuchsia, which signify which is tied with queerness. Right. I used baby baby blue and baby pink, which are obviously tied with the binary, but also those colors put together, they make up the trans flag. Right. And I also use purple, which again is associated with queerness, and it's the middle ground. So the so I used the bunting in the corridor, and I put messages on it, which was, uh, which some of them read forlorn, some of them was uh, forsaken, ignored, unloved, mm -hmm. done. And it was about when you entered, because the, the bunting was in an inside corridor. When you entered the corridor, you didn't see the letters; you just saw the impact of the colors right. but you were coming out you got to read the messages so that was to me that's how I want people to look at um, that's how I want people to look at pride mm -hmm. is it what it appears to be or is it actually something that obviously I don't wish I don't want to say if it's a bad or a good thing that it's evolved but for that reason, because of my conflicted feelings, I 
I I have never actually been to a pride and I don't so what exactly is your problem with the pride is it because it has been um hijacked by mainstream corporate I think absolutely I think because um inclusivity and diversity and equality have now become a benchmark to a lot of uh companies and organizations just tick boxes exactly and mm. I feel like I I see a lot of companies that participate in pride and uh finance pride and they have representation for their companies but they I feel like what are your policies to do with the stuff that work there or how you deal with clients who are lgbtq are they actually that great mm-hmm. um so yeah it was I've got mixed feelings about it. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. So, um what about um like mainstream um programs like RuPaul? Um I know it's become like so popular. Um are you a big fan of uh about of him or of them? Is is that how you um I yeah. I think it's kind of he and him. him. I am a massive fan. Oh, is of it? Ru- Okay. Uh, yes, I absolutely adore RuPaul. But again, RuPaul is a is somebody or RuPaul as a phenomenon in general is something that I have conflicting ideas about even though I love RuPaul. Mm-hmm. So I am I love RuPaul's Drag Race. I think it's a wonderful program because you get to see because drag has now become mainstream and it's something that the 12 year old Antonis would never imagine you know seeing <laughs> From yourself Cyprus <laughs> yes seeing your seeing queer people in television opening up and telling you about their life stories and being and you being inspired by them i feel like the younger queer generations are so lucky to have that form it's of considered as no, as almost normal now to see um, this program i mean it's like enjoyed by every strata of society it's not only enjoyed by queer people isn't it but yeah, but having said that didn't you say that he invites only cis male people to take part in this program so yeah. I, i don't understand this whole issue of um so that is where rule paul loses a bit of his appeal for me A lot of people look at RuPaul and say that he's being transphobic. I see where they're coming from, but I don't necessarily see that. So if I can if I can clarify. So as you said, RuPaul only invites cis predominantly gay and bisexual men. Even though the sexualities are not always clarified, you mm. know, so, you know yeah, there's a lot of yeah. that you just don't know about and there there there, there have been tra- trans contestants but they've only come out as trans after they filmed their season there was this one trans contestant in an all-star season and the treatment of that person was not necessarily amazing mm-hmm. i feel like again going back to the queer community and how wildly diverse we are when i look at shows like drag race i feel amazing to see part of our community represented but it also leaves me wanting more i want to see i want to see drag kings i want to see um 
drag queens who were assigned female at birth. I want to see non-binary performance. I want to see this mixture of performance, which is which is so much more representative of what our queer communities are about. And I feel like, to an extent, the reason why I don't hate RuPaul is because RuPaul has done so much for queer representation. Mm-hmm. And You said he's you, like the um, 60-year-old aunt in exactly. your family. <laughs> you, you, have to look, you have to remember that RuPaul is, I hope, I hope, He's in his 60s. If not, I'm sorry if you're not that old. <laughs> But my impression is that RuPaul is of a certain age. And what we always need to keep in mind is people are, to a large extent, products of their generation. And you wouldn't hate your six-year-old auntie mm. for being conflicted about things that that were not around when, when she was around. Yeah. So to that extent, I, I understand where RuPaul is coming from. But to me, it's also a little bit sad because I feel like that show, if it continues to be what it is, it will never... So does it really empower you guys? I mean, I mean your community or it just uh, is a money-making machine? I don't know. It's just a matter of debate, I suppose. Well, it's definitely a money-making machine. Yeah, yeah. Paul says it himself. He says, I'm not going to leave. I'm not, I'm not going to get in drag unless I'm paid. And as an artist, I really resonate with that. You know, people should be paid. Artists should be paid. Yeah. But at the same time, going back to it, I feel like if Drag Race continues to be what it is, it just has so much more potential. It can become like Dragula, which mm-hmm. is a, it's another reality drag competition where they look for the, the world's next drag super monster. And right. I love word monster because monster is a non-gender term right? yeah gender doesn't fucking matter if yeah. you're a monster you, you're a monster and what they did in the third season of that show they've actually casted a drag king and also a drag queen or a drag artist rather excuse me who was assigned female at birth and when i was watching that show i was so happy because i felt this is so much richer than Drag Race will ever be. And I want Drag Race to include people. So where do you see this program? Which, uh, which uh, platform? Is it Netflix? Or? I watch it on Netflix. Netflix. Yes, yeah. good to know, good to know. Yes. So uh, tell uh, me... But Dragula, sorry, Dragula is on Amazon Prime. Okay, great. Yes. So um, how about um, Cyprus? How, where does it stand uh, as far as um, the queer community and expressing your art and activism? Uh, have you ever been recognized in your own um, community, in your own country? And um, is, um, I know that it's still un, um, quite, inf- there's an influence of uh, the British, um, you know, post-colonial uh, um, effect of like, you know, like India. So what do you have to say about that? How Do you feel comfortable being um, yourself and expressing yourself there? Well, to begin with, you asked me where Cyprus stands. And I always say to people, Cyprus stands 50 years back in time. Mm. And it's... As you said, it's got to do with the colonial aftermath uh, under the 
British Empire when Cyprus was made an independent country in 1960. Right. We inherited a lot of the British legal system. And obviously by that time, it was illegal for you to be a homosexual man. And if you were a homosexual woman, well, guess what? You didn't even exist. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even acknowledge it. So you had the situation where being, being a homosexual was illegal until, I believe, the early 2000s, I think, either 2002 or 2006, I believe. Wow. So within that period, um, there's this amazing uh, gay architect called Alekos Modinos, and when I heard his story, it just made me cry because he was the one who challenged the law and actually took it to the European court. And because of that, they amended the law mm-hmm. and they changed the law because of that. Um, in terms of art and the feeling that I am recognized there, um, it's a difficult question because I've distanced myself from Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And um, I also cannot offer a clear insight as to what queer life in Cyprus looks right now. Because I've got friends who are queer and live in Cyprus, but I don't know, um, you know, I don't live there myself right now. And I've been away for such a long time. But I feel like it's always a sore topic to talk about my art, especially with my family because they completely read it as a cry for attention and that there's something wrong with me because a lot of my work comes from, as I said, from a personal place and my family, especially my mother, looks at it and goes, why are you doing this? She cannot understand why Mm -hmm. I put myself out on the line. And, you know, when you make work that's really personal... You're exposing yourself. You're risking everything by yeah. being transparent with the audience. And, and in some countries, risking your life. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why we're so lucky to be in a country where, for the minute, mm-hmm. for the minute, because we don't know where it's heading, uh, for the minute it values um, diversity. But also going back to what you were saying about... Um, I, th- I think, th- did we cover this question? Which one? The, the one that you just asked me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was just thinking about, like, we talked about, you know, uh, how um, these countries which are still affected by the, uh, have influences of post-colonialism. So, oh, yes. Yeah. Indeed. So, indeed. like in India, too, that, you know, homosexuality was introduced by the British and is still considered illegal, um in most parts so Mm. it's quite tragic it absolutely is tragic because i feel it's interesting when i was looking at my word my work a word that came up quite often was heteronormativity Mm. and to those who don't know what heteronormativity is heteronormativity is a set of um mimetic acts if you will it's 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 a, a set of traits a set of habits that have been performed for such a long time in our culture that went unquestioned. And um, now we just take them to be a picture of what the world we live in is. So the best example to describe heteronormativity, think of a family, you think of them, usually a white, Mm. 
a white man, a white woman, their children, a, a boy and a girl, and then you have the wife dressed with the apron, you know, back in the 1950s and 40s, the, yeah. that kind of and, and you have the father that comes in with the jacket from work and is so tired and honey, get me a beer. And the wife is, yes, please. I'm here to please you, my husband. So that is what heteronormativity is. It's the idea that um, we normalize heterosexual. Rules, yeah. Exactly. And, and, and even now, uh, Antonis, when you see um, in the lockdown of men doing chores in the house, I mean the, those pictures on the on Instagram, like as if it's the most uh, uh, unusual thing ever of men doing chores in the house because they're locked at home. Absolutely. Is and, um, yeah. Is telling. But, oh, sorry. Keep yeah, yeah. Me. No, that's what I mean. I'm just uh, echoing what you're saying about Absolutely. heteronormativity. And going back to colonialism, when I was playing with the word heteronormativity quite a lot because my work questions heteronormativity. It it tackles it head on. And the more I was researching, I, I became aware that heteronormativity is closely associated with colonialism. Because as we talked about in our previous conversations in the past, a lot of indigenous cultures had more than two genders. Mm. They had a very different a- approach to gender and identity. And when colonialism happened, you you felt it, it, you saw a lot of that knowledge and a lot of that appreciation of various genders being lost because you had this empire that had its ideals, and it felt like, oh, let me enlighten the savages let me you know this is our way of living this is our way of understanding the world so we're going to just dump it onto the cultures that we inhabit and then we're just going to pretend that their previous beliefs never existed and 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 it's linked to christianity too isn't it i mean there is oh absolutely absolutely you i can i can go on to a discourse about how um or the Orthodox Church killed the old, um, the Olympian, the Greek Olympian religions, you know, how we had the, the 12 Olympian gods and all yeah. of that, how Christianity just, all of the culture, the literature, the philosophy that came with it, they just opposed to it. Right. So, yeah, but I think maybe let's save that for another Yeah, that's for another day. So what, what is the project that you're doing at the moment? At the moment? So at, at the moment, I've got my, um, what do they say? I've got my finger in a lot of pies. Yeah. You know, they, um, so I have just finished editing a video called The Veiler of Sex. Mm-hmm. One second, Antonis. I'll just ask my dog to stop barking. Yeah, so sorry, Antonis, for the interruption. To continue again, um, let me ask the question again. So what is the, the latest project that you are doing at the moment, which is um, in your art practice? Yeah, so I've got um, my fingers in a lot of pies. Mm-hmm. But I don't bake. <laughs> so at the minute, um, I've just finished editing a video performance called The Failure of Sex. Mm-hmm. 
which is, um, I actually shot the footage about six years ago when I was doing my BA. Mm-hmm. And the initial performance was about sexuality. But what I planned to shoot backfired completely. I got nothing at the time that I felt I could use. Right. And I, I tried to make something with it and I made something with it and I wasn't 100% happy. And this year... I had the. Con- I was thinking about it, and I thought, "Gosh, the failure of sex could be about so many more things." So I adjusted the context, and I went back and I re-edited the video. So now it's become a, a, a video performance which surveys the uncharted territories which are occupied by queer love and lust. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like in in the twenty first century we have um or i think we would like to be accepting of so many more gender identities and sexualities and how do we as queer people navigate these uncharted territories because they're very new so that inadvertently causes confusion it causes uh discomfort and you can see all of that in the video um I'm also currently working on a zine. I'm working on my first poetry zine. So wow, I like fantastic. Uh huh. Yes, it's called Mortician's Pride. Right. And it's the prom it's the premise that I I imagined if I asked the mortician or an undertaker what they pride what what they're proud of about or what they pride themselves in, and I think they would say that it's the mortality of humankind is that, that, you know, we come in this world, we experience so many emotions and then we're gone. You know, we're not buildings. We're not bronze sculptures that will stay here forever. Yeah. We will, we build and we break. Um, and I'm also showing some work as part of the Thessaloniki Queer Arts Festival this year, mm-hmm. which is all online. Right. So I'm working with my partner on some internet-based art which is fascinating because when I got accepted when I got selected for the festival I think the organizers expected me to stage a live performance in my room which was a fantastic idea yeah but to them you know in the age of quarantine the internet has become a medium hasn't it so because my partner was also an artist knows a lot about coding and he likes experimenting with video art mm-hmm. sorry with uh, um, internet art I said to them well we have this opportunity to use the web as a medium itself so sure we can stage something in my room but imagine and then, and then broadcast it but imagine how amazing it would be if we used this opportunity to take performance into the internet world I, I don't understand what you mean by taking it into the internet. So you you record the performance. You it's done live on online. Is that what you mean, or you what do you I mean think, by taking it onto the internet? Yeah. So I think that what the festival had in mind. Mm. So what we're doing is we're actually creating a website, which is the work of art. The work of art is a website, right? And it will it will feature some of the video performances. That I have, you know, with my queer mind, queer role. Right. Um, and 
but also the website itself is going to become a work of art. We're going to have some interesting interactive elements to it. And there's going to be, um, the whole website is just going to be just very fun to navigate. It's not going to be your standard website. So when is it going to be out? When can we have a... Yeah, so that will be live. Uh, I believe it starts between, it's between the 20th to the 28th of June. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all online. Right. And the, and the, mag- the zine, the poetry zine? The poetry zine is pretty much done, and I am just very close to getting it printed. But I think I want to um, I want to sit on it a little bit more. I want to let it stew for a bit. Yeah. And I want to look at it maybe in a few weeks' time and say, right, let's get it printed. So before we end, I, I know um, I should have asked you this earlier, but could you say a little more about your mime character, Quiero? Because I'm quite intrigued. You you mentioned him, um, him or them uh, yeah. twice. So um, just a bit. Of course. Because I have seen you in character, I think. Yes. So that will be interesting for the listeners. Um, so Quiero, uh, Quiero's pronouns are they them and they are a queer mime who is perpetually looking for company mm-hmm. and it feeds off of the um trope of piero and also my favorite genre of theater which is uh commedia dell'arte which is um which is the italian uh, street theater which involved a lot of improvisation and there was a lot of physical comedy um so queero being a mime they don't talk but they do make noises okay and the whole premise of me dressing up as queero is i i then enter a participatory realm but the performance has also become a little bit more durational. So to give an example, if it's an event, I will be there for six hours in character. And Quero is so unpredictable. And obviously we have traits that that I share with Quero, my personality. But personally, I'm more of a diplomatic person i'm very careful with my communication you know obviously coming from a communication background whereas queer will literally just act what they think if they don't like you they don't like you if you fucked with them they will fuck with you <laughs> that's amazing so this is not like that so does queer always um, dress in a particular way or uh, does do they uh have they got the flexibility in dressing or is there any costume or I don't know how you go about yeah, it yeah so the signature costume of queer because I think when you're creating a character you need to have a signature so that it roots them within your practice and then you can play with it so the signature look is um white palazzo pants okay. and a white top with a neck ruffle and the makeup is usually just the white mask and then there's uh, pink in there as well. Mm-hmm. So the lips and the cheeks are pink. Right. And, um, but there are also variations to the costume. So Queero has been seen wearing 
a long dress, a full body dress. They've been they've been seen wearing um, a fluffy tutu, white okay. tutu. Um, and and sometimes they even change their gloves, become pink, and they wear a pink hat and a pink neck ruffle. Um, I love I mean, Quero. Oh my God! I have to see more of Quiro. this character. I'm still Quero. I I I don't remember exactly what happened, but I think when Quero met you, they 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 didn't dislike you. So that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so <laughs> And yeah, Quero is my baby. Quero was the character that helped me realize that I am genderqueer and becoming queer or and leave and, and and living in the body of somebody who is not concerned with gender was so liberating. Yeah. And I just felt like that was the moment when I, I had to come out a second time, you know, I had to come out as as gender queer and I was so worried. I thought, how are people going to react? How is my boyfriend going to react? Oh is it? Okay. Yes, and then it was all fine because I'm still the same person. It's just I do not choose to subscribe to the idea of gender anymore. Mm-hmm. And but you can same- always um, uh, uh, you can always blame Quero for anything. You don't have to take the blame on yourself. Just blame it on the mind. <laughs> uh, but just to clarify, having said that, I you know, I personally don't subscribe to the idea of gender, but that doesn't mean that I feel that that discredits any other gender. To give you an example, I have such a profound love and appreciation for women. Yeah. Because women have been carrying our culture, our education. They have done so many amazing things and women have historically not have enjoyed the same privileges as men. And they were, they were to an extent marginalized in the same way the queer community was yep. you know in the way that racial minorities were you know that there's this kind of feeling that you that's you another offered. topic isn't it there is a lot of uh, uh, angst between women and some transgender there has been some oh yes yeah. there is conflict with that but it's interesting because when i was in art school at wimbledon i i brought up feminism in my research and some of my tutors were so perplexed. Why are you talking about feminism? You're not a woman. You shouldn't be talking about this. And I said to them, but I'm so inspired yeah. by the incredible women who performed things that were so personal to them. Women that made work about menstruation, about being a homemaker, about you know people like... Um, Tracy Emin and her confessions. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. and and why why shouldn't I be looking at that as inspiration? Because mm. I'm not a woman. Mm. I disagree. <laughs> totally, totally. Very inspirational, Antonis. So I think we're out of time, and I look forward to your zine and your um, internet web page with all your performances. And good luck for um, all your future endeavors. Thank you so much, Divya. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. It was such an amazing pleasure. You've been such an incredible person to talk to. And hopefully we get to talk again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Antonis. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.